So the theme for reflection for the teaching this evening is a question. And the question is, is metta enough? Metta is this word for loving kindness. Uh, And it's been an open question for me in my own practice all the way through the last 20 years. Uh, All the way through the last 20 years of practice, different teachers and different people in my community have said to me, Try some more loving kindness, Heather. Try some more friendliness. And I always have this question, is metta enough? And it's manifested in different ways over the different years. So I would say that this talk is a reflection and an exploration of it. And I'm aware that um, I'm sure a lot of you have your own ongoing exploration of it, so it'll be interesting to hear from a few people at the end, should you feel so inspired or bold. I thought I would start with a story from the Buddha, and like many of the stories from the time of the Buddha, um, I hold this one, and we could choose to hold this one on a literal level, also on an archetypal level or a medical, uh, metaphorical level. It's different ways to hold the story, and I find it helpful to hold it in different ways at different times. Here's the story. Once upon a time, the Buddha was returning from his alms round, gathering his daily meal together with his um, monks, with the monks who were studying under him. And they were walking through the town. And as they were walking through this particular town, uh, this was a town that housed a prison. And as they neared the prison, um, the keeper of the prison let out uh, from the prison grounds an elephant. Now, this wasn't just any elephant. This was Nalagiri, the uh, great executioner elephant. It was actually an elephant that was used to execute some of the prisoners during this time. The prison keeper had been bribed by the Buddha's cousin, Devadatta, who out of a jealousy that began in their youth, long before the Buddha became enlightened, uh, was still in the middle of plotting and trying to complete the Buddha's demise. So Devadatta had bribed the prison keeper, and the prison keeper had let out the fierce elephant Nalagiri. As the elephant rushed towards the Buddha, trumpeting fearfully, the Buddha projected powerful thoughts of loving kindness towards it. Meanwhile, another cousin of the Buddha named Ananda, his kind of venerable attendant, uh, well represented in the stories, was so scared for the Buddha's life that unlike his other cousin, Devadatta, this cousin ran in front of the Buddha to actually you know, put his body in the way of protecting what he saw as the truth and you know, something that was worthy of being protected, uh, his cousin, the Buddha. But the Buddha asked him to stand aside, and what he said is, you know, um, Ananda, the projection of love itself is quite sufficient. Don't worry, friend. So, as the story goes, the impact of the Buddha's metta radiation was so immediate and overwhelming that by the time the animal neared the Buddha, it was completely tamed. And it actually, the way the story goes, is that um, Nalagiri just bowed down in front of the Buddha. 
Instead of doing the habituated action of this elephant as he had been trained, and how many habituated actions do we have that aren't so friendly that have been trained somehow in our past? And by the projection of this friendliness, this basic friendliness of metta, there was a moment of transformation in this elephant, and he bowed down to the Buddha. And of course, the Buddha's life was saved. So again, I'm not asking you to take it literally or take it metaphorically or take it archetypally only. I'm asking you to see how it might resonate with your own life. One of the kind of key questions that I often get asked by students of communities that I work with is the question, is practicing loving kindness really enough? And then it's usually tagged on with, what about all the suffering in the world? How can I just sit and wish well and be passive and be friendly? It can't possibly be enough, right? So I would say that this teaching is is a series of reflections that I've been having over the last year about, you know, different responses to that. And what I see is that in a course of a life, there are different responses at different times. And sometimes we need to be more active, and sometimes we're more receptive, and it does its dance, and both sides inform each other. For those of you who are newer to our community, or perhaps newer to meditation, I wanted to talk a little bit more about what is loving-kindness. The Pali word, or the old language word, for loving-kindness is metta. Many of us know and I think of metta is the awakened, open heart that when it's in its maturity, there is a non-separation between me and between you and between all beings. When it's in its maturity. And we have a continuum that we work from just the intention to be friendly to its maturity where we realize, oh, yeah, if we looked around the room, there would be all these different bodies and all these different life stories, and that's true. And... There's a connection here, on a more universal level of non-separation, and they're both true simultaneously. I'm very much preferring to use the translation friendliness for the word metta these days. Um, It's actually uh, a more accurate translation of the Pali word, but when the word first got translated into an older version of English, what we got was loving kindness. And there's a lot of that in our tradition. We're kind of each generation that moves through um, in the West, we're having to, to retranslate these words that originally got translated from maybe Pali or Sanskrit into English, and now we're having to find more relevant English words. Here we are, 2012, Berkeley, California. Yeah. I like friendliness because it's more accessible. Sometimes it's really hard to connect with, I'm going to feel loving kindness. A little bit of a stretch sometimes. But basic friendliness, we can all connect with that. At one point in our life, someone was friendly with us. Right? At some point. No matter how small. And at some point in our lives, each one of us has been friendly with ourselves. No matter how small. And no matter how big um, some of the kind of opposite qualities that can cloud the natural and available loving-kindness Sometimes they get big. I like the fact that um, 
these qualities like loving kindness is part of the Brahma Viharas or the awakened states of mind. So there's different flavors, loving kindness or friendliness, compassion, joy, equanimity. All of these qualities can be cultivated, um, but they also have what I think of as a fruition aspect. Because sometimes we train in them and sometimes we call them forth and other times they shine forth. Loving kindness and friendliness shine forth when our mind and heart is not startled and angry and confused. It's available. We don't have to make a project out of it. And at the same time, we can train and say, I care about this, I want to cultivate more. It's fun that way. And when I think about the main reasons that uh, people come to me and say, I think metta is not enough, a few questions... There's the question, shouldn't I do something? Okay, friendliness is great, but shouldn't I do something? Then there's the question, but isn't the metta just for me? Can people receive my metta? Does it help? Uh, And then there's the wider question of how can wishing well uh, be supportive in the world that we live in that includes a lot of violence and a lot of confusion uh, and a lot of destruction, always, not just now. There's always been a quality of our world. We know that. So I thought this evening I would talk about four different powers of metta. And the first power of metta is the power of the metta intention to heal. And the way that intention works, uh, on the most fundamental level, thinking about, I'm sure many of us know, the first lines of the Dhammapada, the teaching from the Buddha, right? All that we live is created by mind, preceded by mind, led by mind. When we think uh, with, what, a pure mind or a clear mind, uh, the results of that follow us in positive ways, like our shadow unshakable. But at the same time, when we think and act from confusion, which we do, uh, trouble will follow us the same way as the old uh, adage goes, that the cart follows the ox. I think we all see this in our lives. I also think of His Holiness the Dalai Lama when he's asked about his great compassion and well-wishing towards all beings, include those uh, including those who, who have threatened him very directly with harm. Yeah. Uh, he always says, you know what my protection is? He says, my pure motivation is my protection. That's what's going to cause healing in this relationship, the sincerity of my intention. Uh, and it's a great protection, and it's a great healer. I teach a lot at Spirit Rock with Sylvia Borstein, who's one of the founding teachers there. And she always smilingly calls metta. Uh, she, sa- she says, metta is Buddhist prayer. And then she says, I know some people don't like the word prayer, and they're trying to come here to avoid prayer. But, you know, in the end, um, outside of any religious tradition, and we're certainly not asking anybody to be religious here, uh, the power of prayer is the open, caring heart that is directed in a certain direction. Uh, We can all connect with that. That's a human thing. It's not a traditional thing. It's not a religious thing. 
So I get interested in the current studies on prayer. I'm sure some of you have been tracking these two over the years. And one of the recent ones uh, is happening at Duke University. And doctors Krukoff and uh, Crater are now involved in this prayer study at Duke. And they're about to enroll another 1,500 people in this study. Uh, And it's a study for patients about to undergo uh, angioplasty. So the way that the study goes is that patients will be randomly assigned to one of four study groups. One, they might be prayed for by the religious groups. Two, they might receive a bedside form of spiritual therapy involving relaxation techniques. Three, they might be prayed for and receive bedside spiritual therapy. The doctors call this the turbocharged group. Or they might get none of the extra spiritual therapies. And what the lead doctor has to say is this. He says, we're not looking at prayer as an alternative to angioplasty. We are very high-tech people here. We are looking at whether in all of the energy and interest we have put into the systematic investigation of high-tech medicine, if we've actually missed the boat. Have we ignored the rest of the human being the need for something more that could make all of the high-tech stuff work better. To me, that's a very inclusive view. We still go get the medical procedure, and we ask people to send us meta while we are getting that medical procedure. They're both true. Uh, And we connect with both at various times. In the Jewish tradition, there's a distinction between curing and healing. And Pamela uh, Feyerman from Vancouver talks about it like this, and she's a writer for the Vancouver Sun. She says, according to the Jewish tradition, curing is a process which results in the tangible restoration of physical health. Healing, on the other hand, manifests itself in more mysterious ways, for it is connected to the state of the soul. To heal is to achieve a peacefulness of spirit and a sense of wholeness. This can occur even when the body is broken and there is no possibility for a cure. And that's why I'm talking about this, is the power of intention and of intention of friendliness and kindness to heal. One of the million-dollar questions in our community is, can other people receive metta? And if people are sending metta to us, can we receive it? How many people have ever asked that question to yourself? Do people actually get my metta? Do I actually get my metta? I'm just curious. How many of you ever asked that question to yourself? Yeah, so some people. Uh, Unfortunately, I'm not going to scientifically answer that question for you this evening. I'm sure you're not surprised by that. But I will say that in teaching the Metta Retreat every winter at Spirit Rock, one of the things that I'm seeing is that we could start by sending a basic spirit or phrases of friendliness and well-wishing to ourselves and receive it, and actually receive it. Because the way that the traditional practice works is we'll choose a set of phrases, usually four, sometimes five, 
Um, They traditionally have qualities of intention for safety, for contentment or happiness, for health or strength, and for ease of well-being. We'll start sending them to ourselves. We start with ourselves, understanding that... um, that it's personal and we need to wish well to ourselves in order to have a friendliness towards all. And then as we can wish anywhere friendliness, it's contagious. When we're in a room with somebody who's angry, even if we're not angry, if there are any seeds of potential angriness in us, they are much more likely to get activated. We know this. Similarly, if we're in a situation with somebody who is in a state of openness and warmth and friendliness, that's also contagious. So we can start to send it to ourselves, uh, and then we can receive it. And the way we do it in the formal practices, we'll find a rhythm for the phrases of well-wishing, and we drop them in. It's almost like drops of water in a pool, making ripples. And we need to find the pause points to notice the ripple or the echo in our system. So it might be in our physical system of the body. It might be, ah, I wish myself well, and then, uh, you know, a story goes off, a feeling arises, and it could be any kind of feeling or sensation or thought. Uh, We're not actually looking for the goopy, amazing, loving kindness that we all have some sort of concept of that we're always chasing after. I'll talk about that a little more in the... um, coming peace here. So we learn by repetition, whether we're sending phrases or we're just bringing an attitude of friendliness to ourselves and our lives, we learn about relaxing and to trust. Uh, Some of us it's learning about feeling held. For some of us it's more about resting in spaciousness that gets less self-obsessed. Uh, And for some of us, it's touching into what we might metaphorically call the womb of unconditional love that isn't about me and mine and what's happening in my life. Same life, different relationship with that life. So then there's the times when we really want to do something to help. This question, well, what can I do for you? And I, I was thinking about uh, recently, I, I had a friend who was ill. It was a good friend. Uh, it was a, it's a chronic illness, and it flared up again. I mean, you know how it is, whether it's a family member or a good friend, that, that pull. We just want to help so much. And there's the little things we can do, but we can't take their pain away. And so I asked her again, what can I do to help? Is there anything I can do? Can I bring some food the next time I come over? run an errand, is there anything I can do for you? And she said to me, Heather, she said, you know, I am blessed in my life. I have support with those little things. I really need you to just send me metta. And I thought, oh, that's something I can do. And then the very next thought was, is it enough? This open question that has informed 20 years of investigation and practice. But what I heard her saying when she said that to me was, Heather, you cannot change my current circumstances, but you can choose your attitude with how you hold it and how you hold me. 
Yeah, and that's a beautiful request. And it's blending together these Brahma Viharas. There's a lot of equanimity in that understanding. When we have enough groundedness and spaciousness to understand that I have my path and you have your path and I care about you. I have my path, she has her path, and I care about her. I can't take the pain away, I can't fix it, but I care. I'm going to respond. And of course I responded both by doing and by being. Uh, And that's what the world needs. But it needs a balance of both. Because when we're running around trying to fix the whole thing, and we're not grounded in an openness and friendliness ourselves, our energy is not as well used. And we're not as effective. There's also this piece about the continuum of, you know, in the center there's kind of a mature friendliness or kindness. And then on one side of the continuum we can fall into what I call the near opposite, which is a selfish affection. So the affection and the friendliness is there, and we can appreciate that, but it got a little out of whack. And the self-obsession arose to the foreground. I like to look at it that way because we can think, oh, I went into selfish affection, I did it wrong. That's not metta. And then we start judging ourselves. Actually, it's just a near miss. And we can enter right back in through the affection itself and just say, yeah, the selfishness is a habit pattern that's lifelong. It's unwinding in its own time. And I'm going to come back to the affection. The other side of the continuum is the far opposite of loving-kindness, which tends to be aversion, um, avoidance, hatred even in the tradition. Uh, And in some ways we could say numbness, the heart that is not open and friendly and receptive in this moment. It's numb. It's closed. Uh, And the truth of the matter is is that the metaphorical heart, I'm not talking about the physical heart, but the, the mind heart, is much like the breath. The breath breathes in, the breath breathes out, the heart opens, the heart closes. Okay, it's numb. It's numbness. So can we bring a friendliness to numbness? Can we bring a friendliness to our aversion? And then we've gone right back in the doorway of metta again. The second power of metta is the power of metta to transform fear. And many of you probably know the story of how metta came to be transmitted as a teaching from the Buddha to his monastic community. They were going on their annual three-month rains retreat in India, and they went up into the foothills of the Himalayas and found an amazing spot where there was a community of people who were willing to support them with their basic needs, a lovely forest to meditate in. The community even built them little huts, kutis they're called, to meditate in. They thought, this is great. This can be a great range retreat. Very well supported. The Buddha gave them meditation instructions for this retreat, and the instructions were uh, instructions for concentration practice. And they went and they started to do their meditation. But those of you that know the story know that this forest was inhabited by unseen beings. In the tradition, they're called devas. Uh, but it's, it's the influences or energies that you, we cannot see with our eye sense door. Yeah. I'm not asking you to believe in them. I'm just telling you a story. So the devas came out, and they thought, oh, great, monks meditating. This will be nice. But they didn't know they were going to move in for three months. They thought they were going to stay for three days. 
they got irritated because the monks had taken this over. And so they started to make scary noises in the woods, you know. Some of you, I'm sure, hike up in Tilden in various places. And you can imagine if you go up at dusk and kind of crack. What's that? Yeah. Disturbs the meditation. But the monks were very diligent and sincere, and so they kept going. So then the devas started producing um, bad smells to try to run them out. And the monks didn't particularly like the bad smells, but they continued their meditation until the devas sent them scary images, mind to mind. Uh, The monks got quite scared. There were all these scary images going on. Uh, Whether you believe that or not, if you've been meditating long enough, I'm sure you've been visited by a scary image or two. Uh, they ran down the foothills of the Himalayas and went, teacher, teacher, we found the wrong place to meditate. Um, you know, you need to send us somewhere else. This is not working. I can imagine we sit here in Berkeley, Berkeley Buddhist Monastery. There's too much traffic. Somebody's yelling, teacher, teacher, give me a more conducive place to get free. That's basically what they said. And what did the Buddha say? Of course, he said, my friends, you've got it all wrong. That is the perfect place to develop your meditation practice. Now go back up there. Have I got a practice for you? Loving kindness. What? I thought you wanted us to do concentration practice. Well, you know, one of the pieces is that loving kindness is a concentration practice. It collects the mind around friendliness and goodwill. And when we collect the mind and settle the body around friendliness and goodwill, amazing um, capacities in the mind and the body are available. But they didn't know that. They thought, loving kindness. They went back up. They did their loving kindness. The Buddha said, friends, this is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. And he continued, gave them instructions. They went back up. And as the story goes, the devas were so impacted by the friendly attitude of these monks practicing that they actually transformed their relationship and became the monks' allies and protectors. So the teaching and the practice of metta, that was the original intention. And I like to think of that last piece in terms of our own practice in our communities here and now. Because whether we have an external situation that feels unworkable and we can't settle and we can't open, whether we're formally meditating or not, it might just be out in our lives and we're not eyes closed meditating, but it's just, I want to bring an openness and collectedness to mind of this and I can't. And we might remember, ah, loving kindness. And we might think that's impossible in this moment, which is why I like this little phrase that I often add at the end of a series of loving-kindness phrases when it feels hard. And I'll say, as much as is possible in this moment, may I feel protected and safe. May I feel contented and pleased. May I feel healthy and strong. May I live with ease. As much as is possible in this moment, because when our minds go into black and white thinking and it becomes an all or nothing some game, we cannot avail ourselves of our own tools and wisdom. And there's so much wisdom and so many tools in each of us. But we have to access them. I've been reflecting a lot recently on how, really, it's, it's fairly easy to be mindful. It's just hard to remember to be mindful.
the third power of metta is the power of purification of heart. Uh, and you notice I'm using these words interchangeably, heart and mind, so the power of purification of mind. The way that I was trained in the Thai forest tradition and in the Thai culture, uh, that culture, if you ask somebody to point to their mind, they point to their heart. There's not a separation the way that we tend to have in mainstream culture here. So use whichever word resonates for you. Metta is purification of heart or mind. And sure enough, every year at the Metta retreat when I teach, somebody will come in and wear this particular metaphorical hat, and the conversation goes like this. How's your meditation going? Well, you know, I'm trying really hard. It's going okay. Hmm. You know, tell me a little bit more. I'm I'm sensing, you know, I'll say this, but I'm sensing a struggle there. And what comes out is, you know, I can't do this metta. I'll say, oh, really? You know, what's going on? And they'll say, well, I say to myself, and it tends to always be the same phrase, I say to myself, may I be protected and safe? And all I feel is every moment that I've ever felt unsafe in my entire life and how unsafe the world is, and I'm just scared and unsafe. And so I can't do it. It's not working. And it's a misperception. Because we need to understand that all of these practices, all these trainings, are trainings to purify the mind and the heart. And so the way that I hold it is when we say to ourselves, may I be protected and safe, or we'll say it to somebody else, may you be protected and safe, and they get really scared because we realize they're not protected and safe on some relative level. Um, And all of that comes up. Or we'll say, may I be happy? And actually what moves through us is, you know, depression and despair. May I be happy? Wow, I've never felt worse. Um, What's going on is the purification. And if we can bring a friendly, warm, open attention to the process of purification itself, then we've already entered back into the metta. It's not that we're doing it wrong. It's actually that the process is moving through us. And then I have a kind of more non-traditional metaphrase that I sometimes use, which is, may I trust in the unfolding? I'll say, you know, may you be content. And then I'll tap into the relative level of your life and realize you're anything but content. But I can direct the mind. I can direct the intention. I can work with the struggle inside myself and say, ah, may I trust in the unfolding of this? I'm not in charge, it's not on my time frame, but I am making the mindful, friendly choice to direct the mind in this direction. Because if I don't, I might just get caught up in how miserable your life is, and does that help you? Not really. In the 12-step tradition, they have a practice when somebody is feeling resentful towards another person, and they'll go to somebody who's uh, been doing the 12-step practice longer than they have, say, what do I do? And the response is pretty standard. Uh, Why don't you try, and the word that's used is pray for them. Why don't you try praying for them? But what that means is, why don't you try wishing them well? Because there's this burning resentment and the big story. We build a case about why the resentment is valid. And doesn't it seem so believable sometimes? You can think about whoever you've recently or currently had some small or large resentment towards. We build a case. It seems so real. 
We could take the same situation, same person. Often there is unskillful action involved. We're not condoning unskillful action. But we are saying, I would like to have a change of, of heart. I would like to have a change of attitude towards this so that I could say something or do something to attend to the dysfunctional behavior going on that's less reactive, for example. Up at Mountain Stream Meditation Center community, we are in the process of, uh, well, we have bought and now we're in the process of remodeling and probably sometime this fall we're going to be opening uh, our own town center or, or uh, I can't really call it a city center. Nevada City is just not big enough to call it a, a city center. Uh, a town center. Uh, where people can come at any time and meditate and study and join groups and have community together. So this is very exciting. I think it's not just exciting for Mountain Stream, but I think it's very exciting for Dharma here in this country and Dharma in the West. You know, that we start to actually have community-owned buildings uh, where we can make these practices our own in community, in a life, Uh, and have a refuge place to do that, uh, to teach it to our children and to keep it up for the next generation so that it keeps moving. So I'm very inspired by what's going on up there. Uh, A wonderful donor offered us uh, an incredibly generous sum to, to buy this house outright, so it's bought. And then we had to go through the process with the city about getting permits how many of you have done remodels or building projects or, you know, gone to the city? Yeah, I figured it would be some of you. Ah, that practice. The city was actually very wonderful with us. But unbeknownst to us, there was a group of neighbors who weren't so sure about a meditation center in the Buddhist tradition opening up in their neighborhood. Um, it really wasn't a problem with the meditation center, it was more a deep longing and commitment on their part to keep that house being used as a household where children were being raised, you know, and the impact on the community. So it was, you know, genuine concern, and and we worked with them, we talked with them, we compromised with them, but at one point there were some that just weren't okay with it, and we were going through these series of meetings with the city, and a hundred people would show up, which, you know, in Nevada City is a big deal. It's you know, maybe 3,000 people there. A um, hundred people would show up, and there'd be the ones against the center, and then there'd be the ones for the center. And that's not the dynamic that we wanted to, like, set the intention to birth this center. But there it was. And so a couple of the community members, and we do our weekly um, sitting group on Monday nights, one Monday night raised their hand, And they said, Heather, you know, we're thinking about this dynamic. We're thinking about how painful it is. Everybody was showing up to the meetings as part of their practice of service, of support. And they said, I think that we need to have community metta practice before and during those meetings. And that everybody that's not speaking particularly is really holding the metta field. So then we started going to the meetings. We'd gather in the parking lot before. We would set our intention. We would direct the mind. We would hold everybody involved in our hearts. We would feel the part of ourselves that went, eh, 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 I wish they weren't doing this. We would acknowledge it. And then we'd go in and practice metta. 
the end of the story is we got our permits. And the other end of the story is we probably would have gotten our permits anyway, just because of legalities. But the spirit of not othering a group of people in our own local community is very important. And whatever community we live in, we all have the subtle and not so subtle ways and the personal and collective ways that we other others in our community. And really uh, take that on as our practice. Uh, individually and in groups. feels really important to me. And it's a process of purification. The fourth power of metta is the power of metta to enact social change. And so I thought that I would uh, call into our community uh, first all of the unnamed and unseen actions in our community present tonight and in the wider Berkeley Insight community of how much heart and skillful action has gone in this community towards social change. And to really acknowledge that. Oh, it's one of the powers of this community here. You know, the deep bow of respect for that. And then to call in some of our uh, elders in various traditions. You know, I'm sure every one of you has the elders that keeps you inspired to do the next right thing, you know, whatever that means to you in terms of our world the small things, the big things, the front-line things, and the system-level changes. We all have different roles at different times, uh, but we're all involved in this. So somebody that I have been sending a lot of metta to this last season, I mean forever, but particularly this last season, uh, on Sang Suu The amount of patience that this uh, leader in Burma represents, you know, just again to not assume that everybody knows who she is. So, um, democratic leader of uh, Burma or Myanmar uh, won the election in 1989, and the government's response to her winning the election was to put her under house arrest for 20 years to not be able to be present for her children being finished being raised, to not be able to be with her husband at his deathbed. She could have left at any time. In fact, the government would have loved that. And they told her that if she ever left, she would never set foot in that country again. And her response was, I will stay. I will stay and be this beacon of hope and change and love. And she actually learned meditation practice while she was under house arrest, which is a whole great story in and of itself. Um, she learned it through a Burmese master, but it was a book that was actually translated into English by somebody in this country and then smuggled back into her. And she used it to teach herself meditation practice. Uh, it's, it's such an example of the power of friendliness and a commitment to not divide and separate, but to stay firm, to put her body where her priority was. You know. 
And I just am filled with mudita or sympathetic joy for our entire planet and certainly for the country of Burma that she has recently now been able to run in the parliament election, that she was able to, by the skin of her teeth, maintain her health through that election. She overworked and she got sick. And I was really sending the metta then. And she won. She won her seat along with 48 others in the same party. Change. The second example I thought I'd call in um, is not alive anymore. And he was one of the great elder monastics of Cambodia, Maha Gosananda, the venerable Maha Gosananda. And Maha Gosananda means the great joyful proclaimer. What a name. My name's Heather. His name is the great joyful proclaimer. (laughs) Uh, Again, with a very, very repressive government, with the awareness that we have of the thousands and tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of deaths uh, in Cambodia during the previous, uh, last part of the previous century. You know, what did he do? He went into the refugee camps in Thailand. It's a famous story. There wasn't allowed to be any public gatherings, and everyone came together, and he was there, and everyone wondered, what would he say? Every person in that camp had lost part or all of their family. What do you say? 100,000 people there. And those of you that know the story know that what he started chanting was from the Dhammapada, Hatred never ceases by hatred, but by love alone is healed. And it started rippling from one person to ten people to a hundred people to ten thousand people until there were a hundred thousand people. Hatred never ceases by hatred. Love alone is healed. And I, I don't want to make that too... Um, it's, it's not a pretty story. I don't want to make light of it and say, ah, there was the happy ending... There's not a happy ending. We're still living with the lineage of that genocide. Uh, And yet he had a response that was so different and so powerful that it allowed people to feel their life force again, is how I think of it, when they'd lost everything. The last one I'll bring in is also no longer with us on the planet, but probably very much in many of our hearts and different tradition, but it's Mother Teresa. And I want to keep calling her into our communities, even though she isn't here on the planet anymore, so that we remember the example um, of what inspires each of us about her. It's probably different things. You know, but died in 1997 and started the Missionaries of Charity in 1965 in Calcutta to work with those who everybody othered. And nobody wanted to meet with a friendly, open, receptive attention. And she called them in and she created a home for the dying and the sick. I recently came across a quote by her that I hadn't heard before. She said, Spread love everywhere you go, first in your own home. Give love to your children, to your spouse, to your next-door neighbor, Let no one ever come to you without leaving better and happier. Be the living expression of God's kindness, kindness in your face, 
kindness in your eyes, kindness in your smile, kindness in your warm greeting. Of course, we each have to answer this question for ourselves, is metta enough? And we don't answer it once. We answer it a thousand times, ten thousand times. In each moment where we need to connect, it's complicated, it's not complicated, there's difficulty. We have to keep answering that question, is metta enough? And what does it mean if it is enough? Not for you to take my word for it, um, but these days I really feel like metta is enough. And I feel like it is enough because it doesn't end with well-wishing. A heart and a mind that's filled with metta responds with compassion when there's suffering. It responds with joy when there's joy. It has a stability of equanimity as the metta matures, which can bear the joys and the sorrows of the world. And not just the world, you know, our world, the personal world, and then the big world. But it also inspires qualities like patience, uh, like truth seeing and truth telling, uh, courage, leadership, fearlessness, because it's the attitude out of which we do our actions from. And that's why I feel like it's enough, because it doesn't start there. It doesn't stop there. It's part of the great dance of how do we have an appropriate response in our heart, in our body, in our mind, in our actions to what we're met with in this moment, in this moment, in this moment, and on and on and on. So I'll finish with a quote from His Holiness the Dalai Lama, who would definitely be another example Power of Metta to enact social change. So this is called our need for love. He says, ultimately the reason why love and compassion bring the greatest happiness is simply that our nature cherishes them above all else. The need for love lies at the very foundation of human existence. It results from the profound interdependence we all share with one another. However capable or skillful an individual may be, left alone, he or she will not survive. However vigorous and independent one may feel during the most prosperous periods of life, when one is sick or very young or very old, one must depend on the support of others. Interdependence, of course, is a fundamental law of nature. Not only higher forms of life, but also many of the smallest insects are social beings who, without any religion, law, or education, survive by mutual cooperation based on an innate recognition of their interconnectedness. The most subtle level of material phenomenon is also governed by interdependence. All phenomena from the planet we inhabit to the oceans, the clouds, forests, flowers, arise in dependence on subtle patterns of energy. Without their proper interaction, they dissolve and decay. It is because our own human existence is so dependent on the help of others that our need for love lies at the very foundation of our existence. Therefore, we need a genuine sense of responsibility and a sincere concern for the welfare of others.
I want to be respectful of the time, so let's just take the briefest moment. We could smile to ourselves. We could bring a friendly attitude to whatever the body-mind complex is presenting in this moment. And we can reflect with great joy that it is impossible to do this practice by ourselves alone or for ourselves alone. We've already done it together. We'll keep doing it together. We'll keep influencing each other, whether they know it or not. So in the spirit of that, we can dedicate our friendly attitude and our metta of the field of merit that all beings have happiness and the causes for happiness. That all beings experience peace and the causes for peace. That all beings experience freedom in its myriad of faces and develop conditions for increasing freedom in the future. Maybe so. No one left out. So that is what I have to offer for your reflection this evening. And um, I thank you very much for the uh, friendliness of your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.